Enter now the age of apocalypse, Shiga, with your hosts, Dayspring and Scott Free. The name's Cable. Remember it. And the only people who can stop apocalypse are the mutants known as Dayspring, Scott Free, and Michelle. This is Captain America, and we need to defeat apocalypse. me no joy to be talking about the xbox like this <laughs> what is up familia dayspring here with an episode of power of x-men to sort of just do a status check with this big old crossover that's happening right now in the books rise of the powers of 10 and fall of the house of x and i mean it's kirian he's a solid writer he's gonna give something but it's just not a very good story. It's just not very well thought out. It just feels like what it is, like a rushed ending. Because as we've reported here countless times on the podcast, editorial wasn't sure what was going to happen with the Krakoan Age. They didn't get the word to end it until like a couple of months ago. So they're rushing to put a story together. And it, it's exactly what it feels like. And Again, even though Rise of the Powers of Ten is actually a, a far better issue than Fall of the House of X, it's still incredibly predictable, right? There's no real surprises in this issue. And now I get it. We have a couple more issues to go, and that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be surprised. But there is a lack of spontaneity in the storytelling. There's a lack of intelligence in the storytelling. And that's stuff that we got with Hickman. At the beginning of the Krokoan Age. That's what made Hoxpox, the OG House of X and Powers of Ten, so incredibly special to us readers. Why it brought people back to the X books. Why it made the X-Men an A-list comic book IP again. Right? It, it restored the X-Men to where they used to be after, oh my gosh, like a decade of the X-Men being marginalized in the comic books because of film rights <laughs> because of film rights the x-men were sidelined and marginalized in in the comics so house of x powers of 10 what a breath of fresh air absolutely wonderful i think now with the gift of retrospection the Dawn of X books weren't as good as they could have been we gave them really good reviews here on the podcast I enjoyed X-Force. I loved Sword. Well, I think Sword was Reign of X. I loved Sword so much. But when I look back on it, it is an issue with world building. I think Hickman had a wonderful idea. I think the talent and the editorial team that sort of came on board did not match him in terms of talent. Now, I know a lot of you are, are big Jerry Duggan apologists. I say Dugan. I always say Jerry Dugan. Jerry Dugan, Jerry Duggan, what, however you pronounce his last name. I, I, I know there are fans of his out there. And, and to what I'm going to say is, I think he's really good at parodying what he is given. I think Marauders was, in fact, a fun book. I've said that before. I think Marauders was a fun book. But when you look at the overall narrative of Marauders, you're like, what did I get out of that? Same with his X-Men run. It's not bad, but there's, you're just not getting anything. It's inconsequential. And in a situation like that, you know, where I put on my thinking hat is, one, did he just not get any, get any directive from editorial? Did editorial not tell him what he was supposed to do? And secondly, I would say, why didn't the editor, if the editor had nothing to do with it, why didn't the editor just grab his scripts, pull out that red marker, and start, you know, giving him notes? As you should do. I say this on the podcast all the time. I worked in publishing for 12 years. The editor's job is to direct the writer. So think of the writer and, a, and, and the editor being the director. That's sort of how they should be in sync, right? The editor should be able to see the forest for the trees and the edit and the writer should come with a story idea and the editor will see how it fits into a larger narrative. I mean, that's 
that that's how I think some of the more successful X-Men runs have landed. I think we, when you look back and you see something like Grant Morrison's new X-Men, which is contentious, by the way. I didn't know Grant Morrison's new X-Men was contentious on still until I started doing Power of X-Men. A lot of people don't like Grant Morrison's new X-Men and what they did. But I think putting on our objective hats, Grant Morrison's new X-Men sold really well. And it had a beginning, middle, and end. And you can have takeaways from that story. You may not like the story, and that's fine. That That is the beauty of fandom. That is the beauty of being a reader, and, uh, of engaging with this creative content that's put out there. We, we can all be critics. We can all have feedback. However, when you look at something, you can't say it's not a well-done comic, right? There's a plenty of stuff out there that I don't particularly like, but I'm like, you know what? It was a well-done comic, and and I feel that I can separate my ego and my taste from objectivity. And objectively speaking, the Krakoan age is going out on a whimper. And I am particularly angry at Fall of the House of X and Rise of the Powers of Ten, I think, is incredibly lackluster. So, you know, I got a DM, or was it a comment? From someone who engages with the podcast and said, I've listened to a few of your episodes and I have to tell you, it doesn't give me fan. And that has really stuck with me for the last couple weeks because I think that's so incredibly insulting that someone such as myself has been a reader of the books for about three decades. I stuck through the X-Men during Age of X-Men, X-Men Disassembled, and Inhumans versus X-Men. Right, I have seen the highs and lows from the comic books. When there is a low, it is within the right of any fan to vocalize it in a respectful manner. Right, That is how you give feedback to these creatives so they know what's right and what's wrong. Tom Brevoort, was it Tom Brevoort or Joe Casada who said this? One of those two said, vote with your dollar. And I have started voting with my dollar. Because we as weekly readers deserve better content. Now, listen, there is a limited pool out there of talent with anything you do. Lawyers, directors, auctioneers. There is a limited pool of talent. So not everyone is going to be a Jonathan Hickman. Not everyone is going to hit it out of the ballpark. And that's something that we do have to understand when we go into reading these books, that some things are just subpar and it is what it is, right? However, subpar isn't what I would use to describe some of the issues that we have gotten in the Krakoan age, some of the series that we've gotten in the Krakoan age. And I say this about Jonathan Hickman as well. I thought Inferno was garbage. Inferno was a waste of money. No one is talking about Inferno. <laughs> no one. No one talks about Inferno. I have people who defend it, and that's fine. But there's also has to be this realization that there is a vocal group of X-Men readers online, and that's not necessarily symptomatic of the temperature the franchise has on a larger whole, right? So, you know, you can slide into someone's DMs and say, what are you talking about? Inferno was garbage. I loved Inferno. Inferno was great, right? That's wonderful. However, no one is talking about it in, in the way that House of X and Powers of Ten was spoken about. And again, I think House of X and Powers of Ten was a slam dunk. I think it was an incredible entry point for new readers. I can still look at that story and think there are flaws in it, just like everything, right? There's some flaws there. However, I can... We can set those aside and be like, wow, you know, objectively, this is just any shortcomings it has. It doesn't matter because it's a great plot, great character moments, great idea. And to boot, it's already, it's revitalized the franchise. And so, and so, it, you know, when I think of, of Inferno, when I think of Trial of Magneto, I think, wow, how did these go to press? How was there not an editor present who said oh we we really need to rethink some of this stuff because there's some basic things here that just don't make sense right it, as a reader if you just 
pick at it. You're like, oh, this doesn't make sense. I'll give you an example for Trial of Magneto. They were doing everything in their power to make sure the Avengers don't see resurrection to the point that Emma comes out in a bathing suit to distract the Avengers. And all the X-Men had to do in that was say, oh, that part of the island is off limits. It did not need to be this slap-happy, crazy moment in the books. Again, it makes the X-Men look like idiots, right? Hey, don't don't look at this. You know, here's Emma Frost in a bathing suit. Don't look at what's behind her. It, it doesn't make any sense. It's, a, it's an upfront to our intelligence as a reader. Similarly, with Fall of the House of X, this is garbage. Fall of the House of X is garbage writing. I, I, I'm sorry. It, there's a reason why these books are not being read by the mainstream. And I've said this before. The X office is writing books for eight-year-olds, except I'm not seeing any eight-year-olds in comic book stores. So you know your audience is north of 20, right? That That's sort of what I've gauged in comic book stores when I go when I'm engaging with folks on Powers of X-Men, we're adults. We're north of 20. A lot of new readers came in with House of X and Powers of 10, and they were people who had already known X-Men from when they were kids, and they kind of came into the comic books. I'm not saying that's true for everyone, because this is the internet in 2024. I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but a general sweep right there, I'm going to tell you that it feels like a lot of the readers we have today are, are adults. And so I don't understand why you don't write books that are cerebral and, and geared towards adults. And, you know, I want to dive into a little bit more about Fall of the House of X because, you know, me and Ascani Son had a very analytical, thoughtful conversation. And I said online, it's a must read. And I stand by that. It is a must read. If you are an X-Men fan and you're curious to see how the Krakone age is going to come to an end. If you've enjoyed Jerry Duggan's, I'm like so like paranoid how to say his name, Duggan Duggan. If you enjoy, I could have just Googled it, but I didn't. If you've enjoyed his work, if you've enjoyed Immortal X-Men, if you've enjoyed Fall of X, I think absolutely, of course, this is a must read. And it does a good job of setting up a finale. That Of that, I will give it credit for. It does a good job of letting you know a finale is on the horizon. So why don't we dive into Fall of the House of X and Rise of the Powers of Ten and, and do a temperature check here on how everything is and give my thoughts. And I'm going to be very critical as we go through it. All right. So we open up with the issue of Fall of the House of X so tri with the trial of Cyclops. And it's a dream. He's basically having a dream that he's in the Western and he's going to be hung for, for his crimes. And as they knock the wood off of his feet, Gene in the crowd telekinetically lifts him up. Now, I've seen so many people loving the scene. And of course, I'm a Gene fan. I love the idea that Cyclops has faith subconsciously in his dreams that Gene is going to come to rescue him. I think that is chef's kiss. Absolutely wonderful. We know this will be futile because as we know in Rise of the Powers of Ten, we didn't even need to know, read the issue to know this, but we know in Rise of the Powers of Ten, the mutants lose. So regardless of Gene and the mutants coming back from the White Hot Room, from Marvel's own press releases and solicitations, we know the mutants will just flat out lose in the present. And that's how we're going to get the future storyline in Rise of the Powers of Ten. I this dream does nothing other than to set that up that he has faith that Gene's going to be there. Now, I take grievance with the writing. I have this reoccurring dream and I know it's just a dream but it feels real. Yes, you are going to have a stress dream because you are on trial for murder. That's why it feels real because you are literally on trial for murder. Right? Like I it doesn't make any sense to me. And maybe I would love it if by this time next month, I'm like, oh, okay, well, the stream was actually deeply symbolic because, you know, when he passes the fortune teller machine and we see Irene, it's because Irene had really thought of something and it's playing out here in the story. Absolutely nothing. Nothing whatsoever. And again, it feels so real. And yet the people who are putting him on trial, it's MODOK, Omega Sentinel, 
stasis Moira, and I guess that looks like Professor Xavier. I thought it was a human form of Nimrod, but I think someone told me Xavier, and I'm I'm fine with that. But yes, he is on trial by Orcus. He, he as he will mention in a couple pages here, Orcus has rigged the court system in Paris. So yes, he is basically on trial by Orcus. Orcus is the one who murdered his friends, family, and wife at the Hellfire Gala. Orcus has created a lot of headache for Cyclops. So that's, the writing doesn't make sense. I, I, I'm sorry, Familia. I mean, look at the writing. It's, again, I think it's such an upfront to our intelligence. I think if I was a, a very young reader, again, within the five to eight year old range, I would be like, okay, I wouldn't think twice about this. But as a middle-aged adult who paid a lot of money for this comic, I think it's an upfront. The narrative goes on to say, I get to say my piece, but it matters not. The fix is in. The judge is someone I recognize, someone I thought I knew. So is this in reference to Xavier? Good. I hope that's a thread that we're going to find in the future. You know what I mean? I mean, Cyclops and Xavier have a very complicated relationship, of which has not been explored in the Krakoan age. It's like, hey, remember that time I killed you during AVX? But I get to say my piece, but it matters not. I, you know, in the re is this him subconsciously not being okay with the fact that he is presenting a defenseless position in the real world, right? So he is not, in the real world, he is not defending himself. He is just trying to buy the resistance time. Trying to buy the resistance time by letting the trial just go as fast as possible. By not having She-Hulk filing motions or appeals or, I, I don't know legal jargon, but discovery, right? Having them stall the court verdict as much as they can, that is buying time for your teammates. Standing there saying, I offer no defense, is not buying anyone time. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I'm sorry. So, you know, is he subconsciously backpedaling on that? Who knows? But it is really inconsistent with the Cyclops we see in, in reality. And speaking of the Cyclops that we see in reality, tell me, how is Cyclops able to walk? How is he able to walk? He was thrown off the treehouse by, by Hydra Cap, posing as Captain Krakoa. He was on a stretcher. We were told his back was broken, and presumably this has only been a few months since it happened. Why is he able to walk? Even if it was four years after it happened, he would be walking with a cane. He wouldn't be able just to, like, get out and walk fine. Now, listen, you may want to say it's comic books. Ah, you know, no, there are rules within this universe. Batman had his back broken, and that was a major Point in the character's history cyclops having his back broken he does not have healing abilities he does not have super strength or durability it's not like it's rogue if someone threw rogue off of a building of course rogue would be okay someone threw wolverine off if someone threw lower wolverine off they have healing abilities of course they would be okay but cyclops for all intents and purposes just is optic blast how is he okay now was he resurrected with a Wolverine healing gene sometime? Fine, sure, of course. However, why am I doing the work for the writer? Why am I piecing this together? You're not going to convince me here that something happened in, in, in a past issue that we don't know about, or, oh, don't worry, Paul, it's probably because he was... We can speculate all we want, but there has been no evidence in the books to suggest that Cyclops has been resurrected with another X gene that allows him to heal. It's just lazy writing. And again, if I were the editor, I would have taken the red pen and circled the scene and been like, how is Cyclops able to walk? Question mark. And if it is a point, if, if Dugan wants us to speculate, maybe something's been tampered with Cyclops's genetic traits, this is where you would input, put something in. Like a line saying, they thought I wouldn't be able to walk again. Little did they know, dot, dot, dot. It's an upfront to our intelligence as a reader. This tells me 
that whatever happens in these books has no consequence. Cyclops having his eyelids sewn tight, his back broken. Here, he's just walking out. He's totally fine. I know he has a goggles there. I can't really tell with the goggles if there's some way he can see because he's able to walk out. And it looks like he's walking forward without any assistance, but that's okay. We can assume that off-panel, there's an escort for him. I'll, I'll give them that, that there's some kind of police escort that's going to get him through the courthouse because he is a convicted you know, person. In the, well, he's not convicted yet, but he is being tried, so he would have some kind of police escort. So we can assume that. But again, it's an upfront to our intelligence for multiple reasons. One, they think that we wouldn't notice as readers. They don't think we notice as readers. And two, what happens in previous issues just has absolutely no consequences. And that is a big thing with the Krakoan Age. I got to tell you, so many seeds planted, right? We we had an, a writer on the podcast years ago who said it's called Claremontine. And what we're doing is we're planting seeds for future writers to unearth. And that's kind of cool. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's great. However... There's a difference between putting a few seeds here and there and dumping bags of seeds all over the story, and then they just go nowhere, or, or at least seeds that should be resolved within the context of a series, within the context of an issue, within the context of an era. It's bad writing. It's bad writing. I'm sorry. Sorry. And I've seen, you know, I I, I don't know if I want to be shady. You know, we, we I, I've said this before. I've seen Jerry Dugan at cons before. One con in particular, you know, I was kind of excited to see him. I was like, hey, Jerry Dugan, like, got to ask you about the wedding of Emma Frost and Tony Stark. And his reply was so snide. It was like, well, you don't have to ask, but you are. And it's like, listen, man, I get it. I, I That was a future plot point that you were going to be doing. And at the time, it wasn't announced. But I had no insider information that you were going to be doing the wedding of Tony Stark and Emma Frost. That was just because I read the Marvel Almanac or the Marvel, you know, history of the Marvel Universe, and it fast forward to to events, and most of those events had already happened, like Hulkling becoming king, right? So I was like, ooh, if Emma Frost is going to be in a Tony Stark book, are you going to do the wedding of Tony Stark and Emma Frost? And he did, and it was garbage. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible story. And I like Tony and Emma. I stand Tony, Tony and Emma. I just think it's so bad so i with the gift of retrospection i'm like did 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 jerry think that i had insider information i was trying to put him on the spot for something like that or does he think i'm just not a critical reader who reads what is published by marvel and i can connect one and one together it it truly is baffling to me that they act this way it really is and i i i think and, and, you know, I saw him at some other cons and I was like, oh, I should really snag content with him. And I was like, you know, I'm good. And, you know, I I bought his kaiju book, the parody. I think it's called like Cock Who, something like that, about a big old monster with its genius coming out, destroying a city. I bought that book. Because I was genuinely interested and I genuinely wanted to to look at what some of the other writers are doing. And after one issue, I was like, oh, okay, goodbye. So I'm not trying to be awful. I think Steve Fox is a great writer. You know, he wrote the, spy, the, the spider book, not Spider-Man, but he wrote a spider book, like eight leg monsters, something like that. So well done. Dark X-Men, whether you like it or not, Dark X-Men was well-written. His X-Men 92 book was really good, and he's going to be doing an X-Men 97. There's a reason why that talent is staying on board. I say this all the time, too. Leah Williams and Teeny Howard, I think, are great writers. I don't really care for Teeny Howard's Excalibur, <laughs> to be honest with you. I thought, man, talk about a book that had so much hype going into it. But Excalibur was a quick disappointment, and... That's not to say, though, that the writing wasn't well done. And I, I still maintain, I think when Howard and Hickman, when Tini Howard and Jonathan Hickman come together, like they did for that first book of Ten of Swords, what was it, Ecstasis, something like that? That was a really well done book. They complement each other. Hickman can be kind of cold, but can has a good eye on the end game of a story, can see the forest through the trees. And Howard really knows how to write engaging dialogue and, and characters. So... Together, they 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 mesh so well. 
And Leah Williams, I never really cared for X Factor. I know X Factor has landed with a lot of readers, and I respect that. I, I truly do. However, Trial of Magneto was, was, was garbage. Trial of Magneto was garbage. However, Exterminators, when Leah Williams can be Leah Williams, is great. And when she's, she's now doing Power Girl at DC, by God, I can't think of a better combo. It's important that these these folks are are writers and they know how to tell a story to their audience. It truly is. Okay, so as I've said, and I think so many other people online have said, the next couple of pages of Fall of the House of X feels very X-Men E, which is Colossus and Wolverine doing a variation of the fastball special called the screwball special or the pinata. I'm forgetting precisely what it, it, what it was called. And that was a really cute moment. I it, it shows the X-Men coming together to save a teammate in a world that fears and hates them. And I really did like that. I think it was fun to talk about mutant technology and how to, how they kind of fuse together. It did remind me of Ultimate Alliance, right? When they're like the first ever recorded fusion among historians of mutant powers is when Wolverine and Cyclops did the fastball special. I'm like, okay, so you go from the fastball special to terraforming Mars, re-terraforming Mars. Okay. I mean, listen, A for effort on that. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. It, it, it's you know what the argument can be made the first person who created the wheel and now we have iPhones I I get it I get it I get what 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 he was trying to do in those words so that's fine it was a cute moment I think my only note would have been because going back to that conversation about seeds we know that Cyclops and Wolverine and Gene are in a thruple. I would have liked to have seen Wolverine, and I mentioned this up, uh, on the episode with Ascani Sun. I would have liked to have seen Wolverine care a little bit about Cyclops because I don't believe outside of the Krakoan Age we're ever going to get the Thruple mentioned again. A at least not in a significant way. It will just be kind of, you know, in passing. They'll be like, hey, that was a wild time on the summer's habitat. And they'll make a joke about like Krakoa was messing with everyone, something like that. You know what I mean? So, Within the context of the story, I would love to see Wolverine actually being like, yo, we got to get my boy out of there. Because he has been intimate with Cyclops, and he has been intimate with Cyclops' wife. So, why not tackle it? Again, I'm not inferring that they're in a thruple. It has been in your face. They are in a thruple, right? They are in a thruple. So, follow through on the seed you know for as progressive as the x office claims to be oh i'm going to i'm going to get ragged on this i want to say i do think the x office is progressive i do think they do their best with representation however as progressive as they can be they still do coy gay baiting like this and i i don't understand i don't understand what why you wouldn't just lean into it right i'll tell you why because wolverine and cyclops are a list IPs, and if you confirm them to be LGBTQIA+, people will get angry, er, angrier online, and revolt. And I'm just like, then why introduce it in the first place? Why lean into it in the first place? You know who would work for a thruple? Rogue and Gambit would work as a thruple. Bring in Boom Boom. Bring in Longshot. You know? Do it that way. But, I mean, you can also argue that Rogue and Gambit are A-list IPs as well, but it works a little bit more for them because they're, they're I don't want to say they're they're hot messes. <laughs> I don't want to say it like that, but they are definitely a chaotic couple where Scott and Gene not absolved of any chaos, of course. They they certainly are portrayed a little bit more read and sue. But anyways, that's just my two cents on it. You can slide into my DMs and tell me how wrong I am. So then the next scene we get is dr gregor with with cyclops and they're talking about grief and i this is a fine scene there was another reviewer out there that i listen and they're like why is dr gregor getting the spotlight here and why wasn't it moira and i think that is a very fair point now, it's curious with everything that's going on with Moira because because Moira was positioned to be this grand, big villain of the Krakoan age. Out of nowhere, by the way. I don't know why Moira is so evil. The only thing I've been able to infer by reading you know, interviews on the back end, other people commenting, we know that Hickman eventually wanted to do a Moira book. 
and it never materialized. And why didn't it materialize? Well, there were talks, accusations of Hickman plagiarizing Moira's story from the first 15 lives of Harry August. Now, the first 15 lives of, of Harry August is about an individual who lives, who has multiple lives, and Hickman has said he really likes his book, and the author came out on Twitter. I believe her name is Claire North. And she kind of went back and forth. She was like, oh, I've heard there's some similarities between this and House of X. And then all of a sudden, she's here like, no, there are no similarities. So it has been brought to everyone's attention that the first 15 lives of Harry August seems to be an inspiration for Moira. Now, because of that inspiration, maybe they've gone a different route with Moira than what was originally intended, just so it doesn't feel like it's still being inspired by Harry August, right? And I want to be clear about something, though. We're all inspired by other by other things, you know. I I think Rob Liefeld in in his podcast did mention this, and he and he said that he was inspired to do Cable because he loved the Terminator, and that's all fine and dandy. Comic books historically, I, I'm always baffled when people think the X Men are proselytizing a political message because I would be like, the X Men have always sort of been a byproduct of politics, whether you want to believe it or not, they always happen. And I think that's what makes the book special. And similarly, they're always a byproduct of culture. So, you know, I want to be clear when I think of the X books, when I think of Krakoa, I think Krakoa is a wonderful idea. The idea of being other, the idea of being an outcast, and the idea of being a minority or marginalized in today's world is completely different than what it was in the 80s and the 90s. And so the X books should evolve and should reflect that. So I, I I don't I don't fault the Crocone Age. I like the Crocone Age quite a bit, and I'm glad the Crocone Age is taking inspiration from books and cultural things around us. But that being said, because it was made such a big deal online, there were articles written about it on I think like comicbooks.com or CBR, but lots of tweets about it. I think that's why they had to pivot with Moira. And that's why we kind of got this flat interpretation of Moira being like a mustache twirling villain. And so, you know, in this scene right here, we have Dr. Greger in lieu of Moira. And I think the conversation itself is fine between the two characters. I will say they seem to be pretty aware that if they were going to punch the X-Men, the X-Men were going to punch back. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to to tell her in this situation. You sort of know what's at stake if you're going to go to war with a species. They're, they're going to fight back. I would have preferred it to be Moira. I think it should have been a situation of Moira and Cyclops sitting down. It is a missed opportunity. Dr. Gregor, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. Don't care for her. There are some people out there who do, and that's great. I think the scene is well done. Not a criticism on the scene, but I think in terms of momentum for the characters, it should have been Moira and Cyclops sitting down. And especially because Moira killed Jean. What a missed opportunity to have the person who murdered your wife sit across from you as you're on trial for murder. Or being an invasive species, I'm sorry, said trial for murder. For being on trial for being an invasive species for you know whatever the mutants are being tried with here. I do think it was a missed opportunity. Moira should be the end big boss person, big boss that you face here. And you may argue, well, Dayspring, there's still more issues ahead. The first two issues, Moira is significantly marginalized. And I would even say, with the exception of her just coming in, twirling that otherworld dagger, stabbing Jean, and being like, yes, murdered more, more to murder. You didn't really have much. The real big bad here is Nimrod. And by the way, rightfully so. I think Nimrod is is a menacing villain. But anyways, so the next scene is Rasputin hovering over the courthouse when Xavier says, we can save them, we can save them all, but you have to come now. And Rasputin's like, okay, bye. Now, there are two things with this scene that I think it's appalling to us as readers. One, Xavier is picking the very moment that the X-Men are going to rescue Cyclops. 
And I'm assuming this is the day the verdict is going to be delivered because as we were told, the, the, the case now rests and Cyclops is like, I'm not going to defend myself. And there's a press release that's released by Jennifer Walters and, and, and her, and her company and her firm. So why are the X-Men waiting till the last possible minute, the day the verdict is going to be given when there's going to be so much media, so much more heightened security, the entire world is going to be watching. Why wouldn't they do it the week before? Why wouldn't they do it another day? Why the day that everything is being delivered? I, you can argue that the writer, Dugan, in this case, is building momentum. Great. Wonderful. I will give it to you that, yes, there is momentum with, with all that kind of converging at one point. But it also makes the X-Men look like bad strategists. Just like we've talked about before, when Kitty went into Orcus to talk to Firestar, to talk to Juggernaut, you got to be kidding me. There are no cameras around. Like, <laughs> they wouldn't have thought about cameras. Oh, no, Kitty may have disabled them, and you just didn't see that off panel. Okay, fine, sure, whatever. I'll do the work for the writer. I'll use my imagination, even though I'm paying you the money. I'll let you, I'll let you just tell a half-baked story, and I'll fill in the blanks for you. But anyways, so why are you going to wait till this moment right here to bust out Cyclops? And my second point, why is Rasputin hovering within eye range of the courthouse? It makes no sense. The Stark Sentinels, at the very least, would see or hear the sonic boom of her leaving and know there's something up here with the X-Men. This is where I, I fault the editor. Because I get it when you're sort of writing the scripts, you can't, you know, you're envisioning the world and then you have an artist who's rendering it. So there are all these moving parts. But this is where the editor grabs the red pen and it's like, okay, let's make all the background clouds, all clouds, not the courthouse. Because from the dialogue, we can already infer that Rasputin is there to save Cyclops. So it doesn't matter if you show the courthouse in the distance because we know she's there to rescue Cyclops from the dialogue. Because why Why would she be hovering there at, right before they're going to go rescue Cyclops? You're ruining the element of surprise. The Stark Sentinels will identify you. And if not the Stark Sentinels, people with their phones. There are crowds here in front of the courthouse. There are people with phones. They're going to point up that sky and all over X, Instagram, TikTok. They're going to be like, oh, the X-Men are here to rescue Cyclops. And it, it, it's totally, it doesn't make any sense. It's bogus. Oh, man. Another scene of Cyclops and Colossus. They're like, oh, Rasputin's gone, and the Orcus soldiers are now burning Logan. And I think the art is very fluid and great here. Nightcrawler bamps in. Nightcrawler is not Spider-Man. I'm very transparent. I vote with my dollars. I think Uncanny Spider-Man it's not a terrible book, to be honest with you, but it's just a book that I'm going to wait to hit Marvel Unlimited. So I don't know what happens at the end of his series. Is he no longer Spider-Man? I don't know why he wouldn't be in his Spider-Man outfit, but we have Kurt coming in, taking on the Orcus soldiers, and Wolverine and Nightcrawler and Colossus say, then to war we go. And again, that is a fun scene. That is a fun scene. The art the Lucas Warneck art is really good. You know, the one thing I'm going to say about Lucas Warneck in this in this issue, I, I really have a hard time identifying that's it, it, it's him here in the art. I, I guess because I'm so used to his covers and his like pinup style art because he has a very yesified approach to the characters, and here it's very fluid. I don't want to say cartoony because I think that sounds a little um, demoralizing to say that oh, it's cartoony. It's not cartoony. Tooney in, in in a negative regard, but it, it is very like when Terry Dodson is doing interiors. It's just very fluid and, and elastic. It works well with the story, but you can definitely tell that that he's on a deadline and he has to get pages done, is, is all I'm saying with, with Warneck here. But the art is fine. You know, we, we get the trial scene next, and Cyclops is like, I will give no no defense. And again, I think this is utterly ridiculous because once we find out the press release of a, a one Jennifer Walters, Cyclops just didn't want to present a defense because he was buying the resistance time. Again, that makes zero sense why he wouldn't present a defense if someone 
Can you explain it to me how him letting the trial go as quickly and as effortlessly as possible for the other side? Fine. But like, if again, if I had the Marvel Universe's best lawyer, Jennifer Walters, defending me, I would have her be filing motions and appeals. And I get it. It's a kangaroo court. The court system in Paris is rigged. It's been infiltrated by Orcas. However, you could still buy time. Knowing you're going to lose, you can still buy by time there are legal strategies out there and that just makes more sense to me again if he if you just don't have the line i'm buying the resistance time i'd be like okay cyclops is proving a point that's it dugan created this mess for himself from a narrative perspective it, it, it doesn't matter if cyclops is buying the resistance time or not what's he buying time for I don't know, but who cares? In terms of the plot, it's irrelevant if he is buying them time or not. He could just be like, I'm not giving you any defense. You mur murdered my wife. Your actions speak for themselves. That's it. That is Cyclops' point, and the Resistance is coming to, to save him. I don't know what the Resistance is buying time for, because as we see in this issue, Xavier has his own agenda and his own plan. So who knows? And as we know in Rise of the Powers of Ten, the Resistance is doing something completely different. Doesn't make any sense. But what I love about it is his press release where he talks about how he's an American-born citizen and he has rights. And I'm like, wait a minute, you made it a point. Again, Dugan created this problem for himself. It doesn't matter if you're an American-born citizen. You're being tried in France. Your American rights don't uphold in a French court. Again, like Dugan created the problem for himself. This could have taken place in New York. Cyclops' trial could have been taken place in New York. None the wiser. Where is the editor? That's all I want to know. I want to know where is the editor to catch these things. It's almost like the editor just did not care. The editor themselves are being don't care. And I guess because there's a new rain coming in, Tom Rewards coming in, it's it's sort of like, eh, who cares? Let's just put this out. It's an upfront. It's an upfront. And you know what? And and I'm gonna be a little shady here. When you see these reviews coming out saying this was a great issue, I'm like, oh my God, I can just picture the editor being like, Oh, it doesn't matter what we put out, people are still gonna love it. It's like, no, there's some bad qualities here. This doesn't make any sense. It's not make any sense. Anyways, so, you know, Orcus is in their, you know, space station and they're popping a bottle of champagne and they're like, haha, the mutants have lost. Orcus is supposed to be this great intelligent hive mind, right? That was able to foil the X-Men at the Hellfire Gala. And they're not looking at this thinking Cyclops is up to something or the X-Men are probably going to come in and try to rescue him. They, really? None of that. Absolutely none of that. They're just popping bottle of champagne and Stasis is like, oh, ha, ha, ha. One, oh, no, it's Omega Sentinel. Go kill Krakoa. And now this is one of the issues I have with this issue. <laughs> one of the issues I have with this issue, which is Nimrod just teleports up in front of Krakoa and Krakoa's like, wow, snot rocket of Amber onto Nimrod. And Nimrod is like, Nimrod... Nimrod disabled. And I was like, oh, he's just joking, right? Surely he must be joking because he was able to kill Cannonball in an invulnerable state. He was able to decapitate Frenzy. Frenzy, who's a powerhouse. No, I mean, they were able to, Orcus was able to take down Gene. They surely can take on Krakoa. Krakoa, yes, is, is, a, is an island, is a sentient being, but by no means a powerhouse like someone like Gene, right? Or at least... He would put up a fight. Nimrod would put up a fight against Krakoa, right? Like at least he would. He, even if he's going to lose, he'll put up a fight. Nope. All Krakoa has to do is super soak him with amber, and and like those flies in a museum from prehistoric times, Nimrod is just encased in amber, and that's it. That is it. That is all. Krakoa, that's all he needs to do. N never mind that Nimrod could dive from space and come into the Hellfire Gala and murder an army of Omega-level mutants, help wipe out an entire species, it's Amber that gets him in. Okay, sure. Um, I actually thought 
Krakoa running away like this, like diving into water and swimming, was extremely humiliating. What an insult to the Krakoan age and Krakoa. I I don't know. It, it's just disrespectful. This was an island that since day one when we met them was able to stop the X-Men and drain them of 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 their life force. You know, back in the 70s, this has been their mutant sanction. We know Krakoa feeds on the psychics. That was mentioned in a Hickman issue. But now he just looks like a big old tree beard from Lord of the Rings running away, scared, diving in water. And I don't know. I don't know. It just, it, it read wrong to me. That's on me. That I, I understand that's a preference. Um, and so then we get Dr. Gregor, and again, no, Moira saying, people of Earth, while you slept, the world changed, which is a callback to House of X when Xavier said that. So she is mocking him and saying that the mutant threats are going to be liquidated. And if they don't leave this planet, you know, again, they're going to be murdered. And I find it really hard to believe that that would happen in any real significant way. That's fine. I understand there's a limit in pages, so you can't show you know, the divide within the public being like, what? You can't murder mutants like that. But again, I just, I really do think it's just half-baked storytelling. But I would have loved it if it was Moira. If it was Moira, Moira saying this. Again, Moira should be in the place of Dr. Greger. And I wonder, again, did we have to switch courses with Moira because of the similarities with Harry August? And editorial just doesn't want to touch that. I don't know. Just my opinion. Um, so then we get the X-Men coming in. I, I don't know if it's the X-Chat. It's an X-looking plane. And Shadowcat with a K is assembling Mr. and Mrs. X. I did love that. I did love um, her calling Tony and Emma Mr. and Mrs. X. Assembling Juggernaut. And she goes and she goes to Falcon and Kamala. And then she goes to see Polaris, and Polaris is at nowhere, and she is bringing the brood with her to Earth. Now, I like this moment for Lorna. I think it's a fun moment. I Lorna in the Krakone Age has been a breakout star for me. I didn't really, again, to sound like a broken record, I didn't really care for X Factor. I didn't, I didn't think it was good, but there's no doubt that she had a presence in X-Factor. I liked her when she was up for election and when she was on the Xbox. And I think giving the character coffee is chef's kiss. Amazing. And she obviously appeared in the Wanda book as well. So I like that Polaris is getting that momentum. However, now I need to know. Here's a million dollar question as we end House Fall of the House of X. Is it ironic? Is it purposely ironic from Jerry Dugan? that Lorna is bringing the brood, an alien species, to come fight the humans to Earth, on Earth. So the brood would be an invasive species, not only to, to mutants, but to humans as well. And the mutants are being tried with being an invasive species, <laughs> right? Somehow they were able to prove, you know, I get it, it's a kangaroo court, but somehow they were able to prove that the mutants are an invasive species. And now, oh, the irony, here comes Lorna with the brood. I, is it supposed to be ironic? Or was this just, you know, just done and and and, and no thought is going to be given to it? I think it's the latter, sadly. Anyway, so let's go into Rise of the Powers of Ten. Let's go into Rise of the Powers of Ten. And... Again, I think this was a much better, well-written issue. So I want to give credit for that. I think Kyrian really does know how to talk to his readers and deliver a really smart, well-thought-out story. I will say, I think, unfortunately, Rise of the Powers of Ten has gotten lost in its own jargon. And, you know, obviously, spoiler warning, spoiler warning, spoiler warning as we get into it, because I think I'm going to release this episode, this recap, like a day or two after Rise of the Powers of Ten kind of comes out. But Sinister is Dominion. This is something that has been planted for a while. You know, he created four versions of himself so they can all go out and seek Dominion. Dominion is something that's post-human, and we know that this has been plotted as far back as, as Hickman being on the books. I'm fine with it. I really am. I don't... 
with the exception of it being a commentary on AI and technology, which I think is very in your face. I don't think there's much to say about that. But let's dive into the issue because I, I think there's a lot that happens here in broad strokes. And it's it's a fine issue, I will say. I think the cover is a bit misleading. I, I had a lot of grievance with, with Kamala being Captain Krakoa. Not because I don't think Kamala is worthy of being Captain Krakoa, but because I just don't believe Kamala, who is supposed to be a symbol of unity, of of power, of multiple identities, would use Captain Krakoa as a name, given that Hydra Cap, Hydra Cap used it, bombed the Senate, and created a lot of mayhem for humans and mutants. I just don't believe that Kamala would would claim that identity. I know Captain Krakoa originated with Krakoa, originated with Cyclops. However, it was tainted by a very hateful person, and I don't believe Kamala would have taken on that mantle. I believe she could have been something else. I believe she could have been you know, super Krakoa, <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to think of uh, other superlatives here, but, you know, I know saying Captain Krakoa is sort of a, a callback to her roots and her connection to Carol and, and Captain Marvel and Miss Marvel. But I just, again, I think the name Captain Krakoa within the context of this universe would be problematic. And again, for a character and I like Kamala. I've said this endlessly. I love Kamala quite a bit. I just think a character with so much promise like that wouldn't promise for the future. And and there are in the future now, she, I don't think she would be wearing that at all. Um, Shadow Tiger, listen, Kitty somehow got into the death seat. <laughs> you know, going all the way back to Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force. Love that. I love Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force. Kitty somehow found her way into a death seat, and now she's Shadow Tiger, which is a hybrid of herself and Apocalypse. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> I Listen, I think Shadow Cat with the K, that, that Kardashian K, someone, someone said that. I want to say it was X-Tropes who said that in Planet X-Men's post. Which, by the way, Planet X-Men has his mutant brawl going on. Go check out Planet X-Men's mutant brawl. But Shadowcat with the K, I think, was such a low point in terms of naming for the character. Again, not an eight-year-old. Shadow Tiger, whatever. I, I'll take I'll take Shadow Tiger before Shadowcat with the K. This Iron Man is an Iron Man AI. Great. Again, Kyrian has a literary boner for for talking about AI and and what it's doing to our society and technology, right? Sure, whatever. Wolverine is our Wolverine, and Sync is the professor now. Now, I'm on the fence if I like the idea of Sync being in a hover chair and 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 being being the professor for this future team of X Men. On one hand, I think for the character, it's perfect. It makes wonderful sense that sync would you know he was being positioned as a leader as a leader in the Krakoan age that one day he would be fully realized as leader of the x-men i love that i, I sync give me as many stories with sync as possible i love generation x i love him as a character i think he was one of the bright spots as well in the Krakoan age him and lorna I, I, I love that scene with him and Gene meditating in in x-men you know giving giving the dues where they are due However, I'm like, he's in a hover chair. He's called the professor. We get it. He's bald. It's a little on the nose, isn't it? I wish he could have just been shown being his own character, his own leader. But it's fine. I'm okay with it. I get it. It's been a number of years in story. You know, there's a resistance with Emma Frost, and Emma Frost has to pay with it with her life. And Nimrod and Omega Sentinel are ready to ascend into godhood. They're 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 so excited. Tomorrow they become gods. So I understand this is a world where all the characters are different. And I do believe that Sync would be a leader and leading all that. So what I just said stands, and and we have 
at the Henry Gyrick Memorial Detention Center, we, we, we catch wind that the resistance was up to something, that they were able to get the work done. And Mystique is talking to X, which is Sync, and you know her and Gambit are going to make their last stand. And that's exactly what happens. Gambit looks like he's incinerated Days of Future Past style, you know, when Wolverine is being incinerated by the Sentinels in Days of Future Past. R.B. Silva gives us that interpretation here with Gambit, who I guess now can propel himself in a kinetic fireball, in a kinetic ball, and zoom towards a Sentinel, and the Sentinel has its hand and glowing lasers about to strike at Gambit, and Mystique is like, you know what, Gambit, you weren't that bad of a brother-in-law or son-in-law. You weren't that bad of a son-in-law. You were actually pretty good because you made Rogue happy. It's a cute moment. You guys know how I feel about Mystique being portrayed as a bit softer um, in X-Men Blue Origins. But again, I don't think Mystique should be absolved of having human beats in the plot, you know, human emotions beats in the plot because... I think that's the brilliance of Mystique, that she's a cold-hearted assassin, but then she'll have moments where you, you see those glimpses of humanity. Again, I say it all the time. I've said this with X-Men Blue Origins. I think in the original origin for Nightcrawler, one of the most beautiful moments I have ever read, witnessed, seen in comic books is Mystique over the waterfall holding baby Nightcrawler. She's about to throw him and tears are coming down her eyes because even this is too fucked up for Mystique. I love that. That is wonderful quality characterization. And I will say it here. I think it's really cute that she is fighting with her son-in-law. She and Irene have been notoriously difficult to him. And, you know, at the end of the war where they're both going to die, she looks at him and just very jokingly is like, you know, you really weren't that bad of a son-in-law. You made Rogue happy. Chef's kiss on that moment. Chef's kiss. Truly. I truly like it. Um, and then Mystique goes out in a blaze of glory as well. And she says, Irene, I'm coming. And I like that. I like that quite a bit. I, I think the gravity of that situation would be felt a little bit more if Irene had just not come back to life editorially, you know, right? She's been alive for the last two years. So Irene has been dead for such a long time that now in this alternate, you know, world, she's saying Irene up coming home. I think as a reader, I'm like, okay, well, Irene was dead for like 30 years. <laughs> She's only been back, you know, in, in, in publishing terms, like two, three years. So, okay, you know, but it's cute it, within the context. Again, within the context of the story, I, I kind of like it. And I think this scene with her saying, Irene, I'm coming home would have landed more if Mystique had never had the opportunity to resurrect Irene. I, I would actually probably be very emotional reading it. But here I'm like, eh. It's an alternate future. They're still alive in the present. They'll be fine. <laughs> Everyone's going to be fine. So, But it's a cute moment within the story, and I do believe Mystique would say that at the end of, of the line. So, yeah, um, the X-Men, you know, the remaining X-Men go to Phobos, which is one of the moons on Mars, and I know this because I'm a big Sailor Moon fan, and Sailor Mars has two guardians, and one of them is named Phobos, and it's one of the moons that orbit Mars. And, you know, Orcus gets wind that they're infiltrating their station there. And they're like, absolutely not. We need to call the Dominion here. And we, we get the Dominion. And it's sinister. And again, for everything I just said previously, I would have enjoyed the Dominion, you know, storyline had it just not been a little bit more in your face about, about AI and... And and all of all of the commentary that it's trying that that Gearing is trying to put here, but it's okay, it's fine, it gets the job done. You know, Rasputin kills Doctor Stasis, so Rasputin goes back to No Place X, and Doug Ramsey's there with Xavier and with a data page. We know there are a few more people there, but we don't know who. And Rasputin's like, "Well, we failed, sir. I'm sorry." And Xavier's like, it doesn't matter. What we need to do 
is use the Moira engine. So those clones of Moira that we've seen in Immortal X-Men that we've seen, you know, sprinkled around Destiny of X. We need to we need to go back in time when Moira's number 13 and kill her. And by doing so, we will wipe Krakoa out from its existence. We will cut it off from the root. The do Dominion will never happen, right? Because we're, we're, we're told that Dominion, we're just seeing the story of how Dominion comes to rise, comes to power. So the only way to do it is to cut the Krakoan age out of the timeline. And that's it. That is that is Rise of the Powers of Ten. Again, not a terrible issue by any means. Interesting stuff. If you've been following along, very convoluted, kind of lost in its own story. You know, as I was saying this review out loud, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, I think I'm getting X and Professor X and Sync the Professor sort of all combobulated here. And I don't really understand what's going on with Dominion um, and, and what Dominion's ultimate purpose here other than being post-human. But it's by no means something that should turn you off as a reader. So what do I think the the end of the Krakoan age is is good? I think it's action pace, but I don't think it's what you would expect out of an X book. Do I think it's a must read? I think it is a must read if you've been following along in the Krakoan age, but if you're going to try to tap in, you know, to see what's going on, I'd be like just just wait till the reboot and then you can get the the Cliff Notes Wikipedia version of it i will say i do find myself embittered that this is a very self-involved you know series because with messiah complex we had the avengers hijack a really good story and and it had to be an entry point for new readers right the messiah complex story from 2006 ends with Avengers versus X-Men and Avengers versus X-Men was created to bring in new readers and end the Messiah complex. So I'm like, well, this isn't new reader friendly in the way that AVX was. Anyways, Familia, those are my thoughts on House Fall of the House of X and Rise of the Powers of Ten. Slide into our DMs. Let us know how you feel. I know I've been ranting quite a bit. It's okay if you disagree with me. I say this all the time. It's okay you can disagree with me, but I think as a fan of the series, I, I really do want the X-Men to be an A-list property. And by the way, we're getting Deadpool this summer. We're getting X-Men 97. We're getting a Wolverine video game. We're getting a plethora of wonderful Marvel Legends. You know, there's a lot to be excited for in the X-Men franchise. The books are just a little lacking. But anyways, from Elia, you let us know your thoughts, and we will talk to you later.